0: Luke chapter 16. Today we are beginning a four-part series in a study of the end-of-life issues. And I'm not talking about hospice care <laughs> or living wills or last wills and testament. But we're talking about end-of-life issues where the end is actually just the beginning. Luke chapter 16, we'll begin reading in verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his grave covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so they may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember. That during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he might warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we come before you this morning and we come into your presence by your grace and we just want to thank you for your graciousness to us, Lord, that you would bestow upon us the human race, sunshine and rain, that you would grace us with beauty and with song and, and the birth of children and laughter and family and friends that you would fill our lives with these things in the midst of sorrow and sadness that your grace permeates even in the darkest of moments but father as we consider before us the end of life issues that are presented in your word we would ask for a spirit of humility and grace to handle these truths with sobriety lord with reverence and with fear I pray, O God, that you might give us hearts of compassion to see with your eyes, Lord Jesus, and that we would hear your voice and that we might be provoked in our lives to worship and and praise you more for the great gift you've given us, that our appreciation of it would deepen, and we pray that none here would be unprepared for that moment when they face you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What happens after you die? Where are those who have died before us? In 2014, there was a a Pew poll that was taken to see how many Americans continue to believe in the existence of a place called heaven and a place called hell. And while the numbers have declined somewhat, it's still about seven, over 70% of Americans believe in the existence of heaven. Uh, not surprisingly so much, 58% still believe in a place called hell. It's an actually an interesting survey when you break it down and you look at the different categories, religious people, not religious people. When it comes to everybody in the country, though, 70% of the people still believe in, the hell, in heaven, and almost 60% still believe in hell. Of course, other questions in that survey found out that most respondents thought they were going to heaven. Among the Christian community, among all people affiliated with any kind of Christian denomination, the numbers are higher. 80% believe in heaven and 67% believe in hell. The one that I thought was most interesting, among the atheist community, 3% believe in hell and 5% actually believe in heaven, which I thought was kind of an interesting statistic. I I wonder how they kind of reconcile those concepts in in their own mind of a heaven and a hell. But is there a heaven and a hell? And if there is, what must one do or believe to avoid the one and go to the other? Or is it like the lyrics from the popular movie, A Star is Born, which has been nominated for many awards and has won Best Original Song, where the lead uh, singer Brad Cooper sings the words, nobody knows what waits for the dead. Nobody knows what waits for the dead. Some folks just believe in the things they've heard and the things they've read. But nobody knows what awaits for the dead. Is that true? Does nobody know what awaits the dead? Does anybody know what awaits the dead? Well, it seemed to me that it would take a reliable witness to tell us about a place that none of us have gone to. I've never been to China. I've never uh, been to France. I've never been to the Congo. And so I don't have any firsthand knowledge or experience of these places. But if I wanted to get information about those places, one of the ways that I could do it would be to talk to somebody who's been there, who's lived there, who's gone there, and has come back and could tell me about that place personally from their experience and and what would be even better would be if I could have something that they've written so that I could always go back to it when I wanted to remember or figure out what China was like or what Africa was like or what France was like I could go to somebody who's an authority on the subject and who could give me insight into what that place was like and what that place was Uh, the description of it and how to get there and all that kind of stuff. And what we find in the New Testament, what we find in the New Testament is that Jesus deals a lot with life after death issues. And one of the things we're going to find out this month is that he's the one that tells us most about hell. And he's the one who talks to us about a place that he knows very well. For one, he came from heaven. And in a very real sense, he endured hell. And so when we look at the passage that's before us this morning, we find a story that Jesus told in his ministry about two individuals, about two individuals and, and they have an experience of death. And what happens after them becomes an illustration, a warning, and instruction for us. It reminds me of the story about C.S. Lewis and a friend. As they were visiting a cemetery, when they came upon a tombstone of an atheist. And on the tombstone it said, all dressed up with nowhere to go. And C.S. Lewis responded... Doesn't he wish that were true? As we think about this conversation and this topic, we're going to be looking at it from a number of different perspectives. This morning, we're going to be focusing on what happens to you the minute you die. One minute after you die, what happens to you? Next week, we're going to be talking about the question where will you spend eternity today is really focusing on that instant after death where are you what happens to you the next week we're going to be talking about where will you spend the rest of eternity the third message is going to focus focus on the subject of the resurrection where body and soul meet and then our last message is going to focus on the new world that is coming So the question I have for you this morning is, where will you be one minute after you die? Where will you be? Where will you be one minute after you die? That you will be somewhere, the New Testament assumes. Jesus assumes it that you will not cease to exist is the presumption of the New Testament. That as you read through the Scriptures, there is no suggestion in the Scriptures that your existence as you ends when your physical body dies. That you will be someplace is fairly evident from the Bible. The question is, where will you be? And of course, Jesus now tells this story about these two men who lived very different lives. These men had very different lifestyles. They lived in close proximity to one another. Uh, I'm sure that the rich man saw Lazarus regularly outside of his gates as he went here and there about his business. But their worlds were worlds apart. Here was a man that Jesus said was extraordinarily wealthy and so much so that he had no trouble demonstrating it, showing it off, living in a flamboyant style. And the other man that is in the story is a man by the name of Lazarus who is at like the polar opposite end of the social spectrum. Someone who's so poor, who is a beggar, who's living in such a, a, a destitute condition that it's a mercy that the dogs come and lick the sores on his body. Now, some people will say that this is a parable. They'll say that this is a parable, that it has an object lesson that doesn't really relate to the afterlife. But if you understand parables... You need to understand that parables that Jesus taught were were stories about real things that he then used to make a spiritual lesson. So if this were a parable, then he's talking about a real place and making a spiritual application of it. Much like you would talk about a field or a farmer or some a gardener, and there's a, you know, there's a real thing called a gardener. There's a real thing called a field, and there's a real place called you know, a garden where people work, and you make a spiritual application. So if he's making a spiritual application, he's appealing to something that his audience would assume is real. The other thing that is striking about that is that in all the parables that Jesus taught, if this were a parable, it is the grand exception because he gives us a name he tells us the poor man's name was Lazarus. So what I think is that as he's telling this story, this is like a current event in the audience's mind. That this is somebody that people would have known. And he doesn't name the rich man because everybody would know who it was. But would anybody really bother to know who the poor man is? It's kind of indicative of God's value system where the rich and the famous and the flamboyant are well known and Jesus doesn't bother to name them. But the unknown, the poor and the destitute, destitute Jesus calls out and says, his, man, his name was Lazarus. In case any of you bothered to care. So here's a story that I think was like a current event. Something that happened. Something that when the, the rich man died, there would have been a lot of You know, talk about it. It would have been a community event. There would have been a funeral. Jesus says he was buried. And so here's a story about somebody that would be very famous. And of course, what's interesting about that (coughs) is that in the Jewish economy at this time, it was commonly believed that when you were prospering materially, that meant God had favor on you, that your prosperity was a sign of God's blessing. That if you were suffering, if you had trouble, if you were sick, if you were poor, if you were diseased or frail, that that was a sign of God's disfavor. If you remember the story of the blind man been born blind, the disciples wrestled along with the Jewish theologians about that issue. How could this man be under God's disfavor when he was born this way? He hadn't been alive long enough to do anything to cause God to be angry with him, so why would God punish him by making him blind? Or did his parents sin, and that's why he was born blind? But that seemed like a great injustice. So that was like a conundrum for the Jewish theologians. How do you reconcile someone whose problems start at birth? But here, it would be assumed that Lazarus is where he is because he probably deserved it. And the rich man, well, obviously he is favored by God. And so the first thing that comes out of this story is this sense in which the way we perceive things in this life is often upside down when it comes to God. That God does not see us the way we see each other. But Jesus goes on to say that here are these two men and they both experience life's final curtain. They both die. They both die. It's the universal statistic. One out of every one person dies. It's the one great eventuality. The ultimate equalizer. Nobody likes to think about it, and many refuse to prepare for it. It's interesting, like when you think about Americans, we are like such in-the-moment kind of people, and so you're like, why are so many people carrying around enormous amounts of credit card debt? It's because they live in the moment. They see something, they want it, they buy it, they put it on the charge card, they don't think about tomorrow. In fact, it's been reported that Americans are saving less That at any time in our history as a country, we just don't put away for forget the rainy day, we don't even put away for tomorrow. There are very few people who are actively planning for their retirement. I mean, some people are maybe planning for their vacation, but most people just don't think about the future. And what's interesting is we try to put that future, that moment when we're going to die, as far from our consciousness as possible. People invest all kinds of money to prolong the appearance of youth, emphasizing the appearance of youth. In other words, you can get facelifts and Botox and all that stuff and hair dye and and toupees and hair replacement, you do all those kinds of things to try to hold off the appearance of of old age, but you're still getting old. And, And of course, we do a lot also to try to minimize the the finality of death or the sobriety of death or the seriousness of it by using euphemisms, oh like so-and-so passed on. Oh they passed away. And when we often go to to, uh, uh, funerals we will be amazed at the artistry of the undertaker, we'll be amazed at the artistry of, of, of the funeral director who will make the person look like they're alive but just sleeping. In other words, we want to push from our consciousness, as much as possible, the reality of death. Now, in other countries, that's not so easy to do. In fact, in many countries of the world, it's absolutely impossible to do. And because of that, they're far more comfortable talking about things like the afterlife. Or where you'll spend eternity? Or what will you do when you die? Or where will you be one minute after death? In other words, these are conversations they have all the time with themselves because they are confronted regularly with the prospect of dying. But here in our country, we live under an illusion. It's a grand illusion. May I suggest it's a grand lie that we live forever that we're never going to get old and that we're never going to die. Of course, you get to be my age, you start to see behind the curtain on that one. (laughs) And the older you get, the more your body reminds you that the clock is ticking. But when you're in your 20s or in your 30s or in your 40s, you still think, got lots ahead of me. Here's a sober exercise I want you to do someday, maybe over the next month. I want you to take a stroll through a cemetery. I want you to take a stroll through the cemetery and I want you to find you. And what I mean by that is, you will find someone who is exactly your age who's buried there. It doesn't matter whether you're 16 Doesn't matter whether you're 25. Doesn't matter if you're 37. Doesn't matter if you're 56, 67, 74, 89. Doesn't matter what age you are. You'll find your counterpart buried there. I used to do that, and I still do from time to time walk through cemeteries to remind myself that I only have one life, and it will soon be passed. And you see. These men experienced that eventuality, that common denominator. As the psalmist would say, who can live and never see death? Who can escape the power of Sheol? But you notice that Jesus says the rich man was buried, but he doesn't mention the body of of Lazarus. Why? Because in all likelihood, Lazarus' body wasn't buried. In all likelihood, Lazarus was taken and thrown into the garbage dump, which is what happened to the poor in that time period. If you could not afford a proper burial, basically the garbage collector would collect the body of the dead, take it out to Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, and throw it into that wasteland of burning fire and waste where it would be consumed, where the worm would not die and the fire is not quenched. But here, Jesus goes on to say something that would pique the interest of the listeners. He would say to them that while the rich man is buried, and Lazarus, who knows what happened to his body, both men men continue to exist. And I want you to observe what Jesus says here. It says that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, there's a couple of observations we need to make before we get into some of the more technical things here. The first one is this, that both of them are continuing their existence after they have died. And I want you to understand something. They are not ghosts. They're not shades. What you see in this story is that they are conscious. They know who they are. They know where they've come from. They have memory. They have voice. They have emotion. They have consciousness. In other words, everything that you would define as you, they possess. There is no diminishing of their consciousness. They exist. As they did. There's almost no difference in their identity. It's only in their location. So, what that means is that one minute after you die, you are still you. You are still you. You're not something else, you're not a ghost. You're not a shade. You're not some forgetful being who's wandering around the universe looking for a home. Notice also that they're in a real place. They're in a place that is called Hades. Now, this is going to get a little cosmic here so stay with me okay but in the old testament there is a word that appears many times over 60 times in the old testament it's the word sheol and when the old testament was translated into greek the hebrew translated into greek that word sheol they used the greek word hades to translate sheol now, what was Sheol to the mind of the ancient Hebrews? Well, I'll tell you that for most of the references in the Old Testament, Sheol is not a good place. Sheol's not a place you'd want to be. Sheol is a place where the dead spirits are. And what we find is that that in the, in the Old Testament, as, as the Old, Old Testament is revealed and God speaks to his people, we find that there is this ob- abode, this place where the departed went to. And what began to be clear is that in this place, there was a part of that place where the righteous departed, those who had faith in God and his covenant dwelt, and there was a place of, in, that, in that realm where the unrighteous existed. And what we find here is that in that place, it's almost like there were two dwellings within this one realm. If you will, we could call it the kingdom of the dead, if you will. And in the kingdom of the dead, or in the land of the dead, there was a place that was pleasant. It was a place of peace and rest. But there was another place place in that realm that was a place of torment notice in this story that when jesus tells it there's no reference to god and the angels and the throne room nothing reminiscent at all of like revelation chapters four and five there's no reference at all to this In this story, it's a place where the dead go. And what's interesting to me is that they are in proximity to one another. The rich man can see Abraham. They're close enough that he can call out to Abraham as if there is this like canyon between them. And on one side of the canyon is Abraham and Lazarus. And on the other side of the canyon is this this rich man. And the differences in their experience at this point are dramatic. Abraham, the father of faith, Lazarus, in a place of comfort. They are experiencing comfort, peace, rest. The rich man, he says, I'm in torment. I am in agony. I am in pain. This is a terrible place, it's such a bad place. Abraham, please, let Lazarus come just to alleviate some of my suffering. And Abraham's like, I I wish we could, but we can't. Even if we wanted to, the distance between us is too great. And it's like, oh, this is such a terrible place. Abraham, send Lazarus back to tell my brothers, they won't come here. And Abraham says, that won't work. Sheol, Hades, the place of the dead. Apparently, sometimes the word sheol is synonymous with death. In other words, it just speaks of death. Sometimes in the context of the passages in the Old Testament, it means the grave. And sometimes the context is ambiguous, and so Maybe it means the grave, or maybe it means this place. But what we must not do is assume that there is some kind of loss of consciousness after death. Where will you be one minute after you die? Listen to what Jesus said. As he was dying on the cross, he said, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, who did he say that to? He said it to the thief who was dying next to him on the cross. The thief who had just professed his faith in Christ, owning him as his Messiah owning him as his Lord, recognizing that Jesus was there dying for nothing he had done, where he himself was guilty of the crimes worthy of death, deserving of the wrath of both God and man, But the one next to him on the cross was innocent of any wrongdoing. And more than that, in listening to the exchange between Jesus and and the men and women in front of him, listening to Jesus pronouncing forgiveness to those who had crucified him, listening to Jesus blessing Mary and speaking words of instruction to John and crying out about God's wrath on him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This man hears Jesus and recognizes something. The veil is torn open and he sees in that clarity of moment at the moment of his death that this one dying on the cross is none other than the Son of God. And he cries out, he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus dies. And what's interesting and striking is that in the time between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, guess what became known as Abraham's bosom? Paradise. And so what happened? Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He was committing himself to the one who had judged him for for our sin and had now finished the work on the cross and was now beginning to unveil and unroll the great salvation that God had begun before the foundations of the world. And what was the first place that that was realized? But none other than Sheol. And what does he say after his resurrection? What does he say to John in the great revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Behold, I am he who is dead and am alive and I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Sheol. Now, there is some controversy and disagreement about this, and you may not agree with me on this, but this is how I see it. That in that time before the resurrection, in that time before the Messiah took upon himself the sin of the world, everyone who died went to Sheol, righteous and unrighteous. And those who were righteous were in Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort and of anticipation. But I believe that when Jesus died, he opened the doors from Sheol to heaven. And that he took the keys of death and hell, which until that time the Bible suggests that the the devil who had the power of death was destroyed. And by dying, he wrested that power from him and all the righteous in Sheol were led into the presence of God. And that at his resurrection, he now possesses the keys of death and hell. So if you are here this morning, if you are here this morning and you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, there was a moment in your life when you understood like that thief on the cross that you are guilty of sin, that you are deserving of the wrath of God, that there is nothing you can do to propitiate or or assuage or atone for that wrath, but that there is only one way. There is only one person, there is only one who has conquered death, has been buried and risen from the dead, that you and your mind and heart understand that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except when you realize that and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, what happens to you when you die? I'll tell you this, you don't go to Sheol. I think that deserves an amen. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't go to Sheol. O death, where is your victory? O Sheol, where is your sting? You see, what does Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. What did the Apostle Paul say? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Where is the Lord Jesus Christ right now? He is sitting in heaven. We wait for him, as Philippians says in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, we wait for him from heaven to come and to transform our lowly bodies into, his, into an image of his glorious body. Where is the Lord Jesus Christ right now? He is in heaven. And where do you go the moment you die? You don't go to Sheol. You go to heaven. And it's like quicker than passing through a door there is no break in your consciousness. It's like you blink and suddenly like, whoa, I don't feel pain anymore. Now, we may get into in some of our teaching sessions, what do we look like in our intermediate state? Because one of the topics we're going to be talking about is the resurrection of our bodies. So if I go to heaven right after I die, I'm kind of departed from my body. There's my body in the ground, or it's in an urn, or in ashes, whatever. But it's not here. You know, like, 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 you know, where, what, you know where, what, so what kind of person am I in, in glory? And we'll talk a little bit about some of the possibilities that are before us. But the fact remains is that I'm not in Sheol. I'm not in the grave. The grave has no power over me. But what about those who don't know Jesus. I have some very bad news. Sheol is never satisfied. Its mouth, the Bible says, is always open. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, your minute after you die Will be as startling to you as it was to the rich man when you find yourself conscious, alert, awake, and in torment. And I have worse news for you that's not hell. That's not hell. The Bible uses a totally different word. One of the problems we have in English is that they often translated Hades as hell in the old English versions. It's not hell. When Jesus talked about hell, he used the word Gehenna. And you see, today the rich man still is there. Why? Why? Because he's waiting for judgment day. And you see, the Bible talks a lot about different judgments. And you see, it says in Hebrews that after a man dies, after a woman dies, it is appointed unto them for judgment. So the moment you die, there's a judgment that takes place. What is that judgment? Well, that judgment is where you stand with Jesus. And whether you are admitted into heaven on the virtue of his blood and sacrifice on the cross or whether because of your own obstinate pride or foolish delusion, you never accepted the free gift of eternal life, at which point you are consigned to Sheol, to Hades. And there you will wait until final sentencing. You say, Oh, well, how is that possible? Look, we have a perfectly logical parable in today's, in today's world. If I am arrested for a crime... A serious crime, let's say it's domestic battery or drunk driving or uh, heroin possession with the intent to sell. Guess where I go? Normally, I go to county lockup. And I stay in county lockup for an indefinite period of time until such time I'm tried. And guess what? While the trial goes on, guess what? I still go back to county lockup until the verdict is reached. And then when the verdict is reached and the sentence is read, I don't go back to county lockup. I go to the big house. And depending on the severity of the crime, it depends whether it's a minimum, medium, or maximum security prison. And you see, that's what Hades is. Hades is the county lockup. But hell, that's the maximum security prison. And from there, there is no escape. I had a friend of mine who got himself into some serious trouble. And he was arrested right in front of his children in his home. Taken away, and he was arraigned, and he had a trial. And I can tell you, in the months and months before the trial, I had never seen a man prepare for his defense as enthusiastically as he did, marshalling character witnesses, getting the story straight, hiring the best attorneys he could afford. He was not going to go into that courtroom unprepared. It shocks me. It grieves me. That most of my friends and my neighbors care nothing for their defense when they will stand before the judge of the universe. And they assume that their puny efforts will somehow win an acquittal in that day. When all they need to do is have the right attorney, the right advocate on their side. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let us pray. If there's someone here who's never taken the moment and asked for their forgiveness, who's never cried out to God for salvation, asking for Jesus to be their Savior, I just want to give you a moment. In a few minutes, some people are going to be baptized and those who are baptized have made that profession of faith. They have put their trust in Jesus Christ and they want the world to know that by putting their their testimony out there. If you would want Jesus to be your Savior, He wants to save you more than you want to be saved yourself. Just say yes to Him cast yourself upon Him, call out to Him, ask Him. He will not turn you away. And if you're here the, this morning, may the reality of what we have in Christ create in us such gratitude, such eternal perspective. Our God and our Father, we thank You for this opportunity to be in Your presence and to consider these things and lord we just thank you for the salvation that's ours in christ we thank you that it's not by works of righteousness which we've done but by your mercy and your grace you save us that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves that it is your gift to us not of our works and so we thank you lord that that sheol the grave hades hell they have no claim on us those of us are saved in Christ, forgiven, pardoned, redeemed, justified, forgiven, Lord, thank you. We just pray for us as we go into this week that we would not rest on just our own assurance, but you give us a heart of compassion for those who do not know you. For Lord, we ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.